You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2002 film, The Junction Boys. So back a while ago in April, when baseball season started, we wanted to do something a little bit, you know, in theme with baseball, so we discussed Eight Men Out. Well... Now, college football has started as right now. Uh, there's football games going on right now as we are recording. Yeah. So I figured, <laughs> what's a good football movie that we can get some themes and ethics and stuff out of? And I thought of this movie. Yeah. So it's more. It's probably, at this point, more famous as a book. It was originally written by Jim Dent, who is a longtime Dallas sports writer. Um, it's the story of, who don't know, it's Paul Bear Bryant, the famous... Uh, college head coach, mostly known for Alabama. He went there for about 20-something years, won six national championships. But before that, he the stop before that, he spent four years at Texas A&M. And in his very first year, to sort of whip the team into shape, because before they were kind of a mediocre football team, he took them for 10 days at a harsh training camp in Junction, Texas, and it was the conditions were notoriously very harsh. In the book, it goes into more graphic detail, but it was 100 degree heat, very dry, humid, 100 degree heat every day. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in this small town in Junction, Texas, which at the time was going through a horrible drought. It wasn't until I think four or five years later that they actually started getting rain again. Yeah. And um, so they had, there was no relief from that. It was unbearably hot. He would not allow water breaks. And they would go pretty much all day. And yep. it was sort of to whip this team into shape. Um, he is also, not only does that, but he also hits his players, shows them how to properly block. He gets in their face. He screams at them a lot. But they also, another thing they show a little bit was, but on the field, there was like cactuses, little cactus bits, and it was cutting up their fingers. Yeah, they, they had to deal with fire ants on the yeah. field. This was not a proper place to do football practice. <laughs> right. And, I love this scene when they first arrive and, and you know, his staff are looking at, looking at this, just this barren kind of wasteland with, with you know, scrub. They even show the tumbling tumbleweed as when they first arrived. There's the tumbling tumbleweed going going through the the shot. Uh, but they're looking and all scattered throughout this alleged field. And actually, it's just dried mud cake. It's nothing else. Are these huge rocks. And he says, well, you guys need to get to it. Get those rocks out of this field and put me up some goalposts. <laughs> And you you know uh, this group. It's a, a group of two uh, uh, two busloads of players. You know there's going to be a very high attrition rate by the end of this film yes. at that very moment. And the great thing about the stickers is it's a kind of a plant. I don't recall what kind of plant it is, but 
it's it is native to Texas, and you know you think of stickers, you think of grass cockleburs, right? The, the, the little things that um, certain species of grass have, and they're kind of small. They're maybe the size of your uh, your uh, small fingers uh, nail. Well, these suckers are big. They're about the size of a quarter, and they actually do embed into the flesh. And you can and they, that's very accurate. They show that. I can't recall the name of the plant, but they're there. They're out there. Yes, and they were the players suffer all kinds of injuries, back injuries, and the worst case was one of the players, which is this really happened. He suffered dehydration. He suffered a heat stroke. He collapsed, lost consciousness. They had to rush um, that player to a nearby doctor. And the doctor he already he was already seeing some of the players as one of them had a broken back he had a feeling he warned Bryant yeah that he had a feeling that if you don't give these kids water breaks that they're going to suffer dehydration one of them could have had a heat stroke he prepared for that so he stocked up on a bunch of ice bags so when they brought him in he was able to bring the kid into the examining room and just put a massive yeah. amount of ice all around him that yeah. eventually got his temperature down and slowed his heart rate that he was able yeah. to make a recovery but that was a very near near very thing. near death yeah and if it wasn't for the actions of that doctor and that preparedness that kid probably would have died yeah definitely and so basically right at the end he calls the practice off like a day or two shorter than they were supposed to stay and they all head home many of the players abandoned ship i think they report that over a hundred players showed up in a about 35 stayed. Yeah, there were two full bus load, two, you know, full school buses, basically the same size as a typical school bus at the beginning. And uh, by the end, uh, there's uh, not quite half full one bus left, and that's including staff. Yeah, and the, that's where the movie ends. It doesn't show exactly, should we see flash forwards to this 25th reunion, but yeah. it sort of explains, for those wondering, that that year they only won one game, but that one win was against Georgia, who was one of the top-ranked teams in the country. But his next three years, they ranked among the best teams yeah. in the country. One year they went undefeated and pulled off this massive upset against Texas, which, you know, of course, that's a huge rivalry. Oh, yeah. But, um, and then he decided because he was, Bear Bryant is from Alabama. He played college there when he was a kid. He went back and you know, we, we know the rest of the story, yes. as they yes. say. Yeah. But um, it, then it flashes forward to, well, we see the very beginning. He, it's He's going for a 25th reunion. This is after he's made his name. He's got the famous checkered hat that he always wore. Yeah. And he's, but he's nervous because he doesn't know how the players will react. He, right, and he feels guilt, which in real life he talked to a minister. Uh, I forget the name of the evangelist, but he's talked to him near the end of his life. He yeah. regretted, and among other things, but the, how he treated them. So he yeah. goes in there. Yeah, the evangelist is Robert Schuler, and they had a heart to heart about religion near the end of his life. He talked about how he wished he didn't drink so much, and maybe spend more time with his family, but also how he treated the Junction Boys. We see that at the end of the movie, he's nervous. Yeah. But, and there were players that didn't show up, 
but a lot of all the ones that showed up hugged him. They talked about how he made them the man they were today. Yeah. And when he gets, he's nervous. He makes this speech of how he apologizes for how he treated them, and he says, "If I was in your shoes, I would have ran as well." And then they sort of laugh it off. They go, "Now he tells us." <laughs> yes, and so me. after that, the ice has been broken, and it's yeah. more of a jovial uh, reunion. Reunion, yeah. And it, they, they give him a ring called the Junction Boys. It says the Junction Boys on it, remembering that group of people. And at the end of the aftertext, because Bear Bryant died about a decade later, yeah. I think the I think eighty three was when he passed. Yeah. But um, the t- at his funeral, he never he won six championships with Alabama. You say Paul Bear Bryant, everybody's going to say Alabama. I mean, there's right. a statue of him at the stadium. But the only ring he ever wore, the war- the ring that he wore on his death and his funeral, was the Junction Boys. Yeah. I wonder watching this film because you think it's it's that traditional the method of teaching or mentoring somebody do you be the drill sergeant do you be the hard ass do you scream at them do you do this do you do that or do you be more of a friend you know somebody right. you can look up to bear bryant was definitely on the hard ass side as a lot of college coaches of his time yeah. and i wonder does the film excuse him or does it kind of have a muddled uh message i i think it i <sighs> I don't think the film completely excuses him. And I like the fact that it also doesn't allow Bear Bryant to excuse himself. He's grown since those days. But it still conveys, I think, a very important message about what he perhaps inadvertently did in uh, um, preparing a football team to ultimately uh, be uh, successful. Um, And this is what's remarkable about it. It, This all occurs over the course of, what is it, 10 days, two weeks at the most. Um, What you you have is a, a testimony at the end to what a formative experience this was for what you see then at, at this point as men in their 40s and 50s. They distinctly remember it. They have derived very important lessons from it in terms of perseverance, uh, battling through fear, and uh, uh, not giving up. And that they appreciate that lesson, the, the, the characters that appear later, later in that uh, film. And curiously, somebody that doesn't appear in the film also uh, I think carried that lesson with him in his subsequent career, uh, and that's Gene Stallings. Mm-hmm. The reason the book was written is because Jim Dent, who covered the Cowboys in their uh, glory days, the '60s and '70s, um, uh, uh, spent a lot of time with the coaching staff and the players, but the coaching staff in particular. And Gene Stallings was one of uh, Tom Landry's assistant coaches. And as tends to happen with sports writers and, and coaches, when you know, uh, when they're not, as it were, doing the business of talking about their present team and their present season and, and preparations for the next week or whatever, uh, they sit around and kind of shoot the bull too, have their drinks and shoot the bull. And Stallings, even uh, well after these events, he was a Texas A&M uh, student and a student athlete. 
uh, he still had vivid and memories. And a coach, too. He uh, yeah. famously went against uh, Bear Bryant in the Cotton Bowl in the late 60s and yes. beat him, actually. Yes. Yes. yes, And then he, after Bear Bryant passed on, he took over the Alabama job and won a national championship. Absolutely right. And so the, you see the amount of impact that this experience and Paul Bear Bryant had on him. And uh, it, it was evident to Jim Dent because he would always recur to this, these stories about Paul Bear Bryant and uh, in, in his own way would try to emulate him. But what's kind of interesting is he would try to, uh, you see in his coaching career, you, you see maybe a, a softening, a kind of hybridization uh, between the approach of Bryant and the approach of Landry, who was another major influence on him. Uh, Landry's uh, uh, training camps were hard. They were nowhere near as hard as anything Bear Bryant did. Uh, and you, if you if you look at uh, you know the history of um, players that had played for him, a lot of them had the same sorts of complaints and resentments that uh, 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 some of uh, Bear Bryant's players had at the time they were playing for him, but his approach still was fundamentally different. You have to remember in that time period. He wasn't period, a rah, 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 scream no, your head off guy. No, guy. He, was, he still ran rough training camps, right? But, it, but his, his approach was very much more analytical and preparation and strategic. I mean, you look at a Tom Landry playbook, it's immensely complex. Bear Bryant did not have immensely complex playbooks. He was more like, Land, uh, more like Lombardi. Uh, basic playbooks, uh, just practice to death so you're so good at a few basic formations and basic plays that you'd be able to run it against anybody. Landry was very much uh, used deception, shifts, hiding uh, your true intentions, both on offense and defense, using uh, different means. Um, so his his mentorship was was much more it was less emotional it was more just it was almost scientific is the way you could talk about it so it's interesting that uh um uh, stallings tried to combine these two styles in and he had a pretty successful career at least in college not so much in the pros as a head coach but in college he did he's a college football hall of famer yeah head coach and uh the, the the thing that is amazing uh, it, when you hear, read Dent talking about Stallings, I mean that it, that ten days <laughs> injunction had such an immediate impact or such a long lasting impact on his life um, that it ended up generating this book. And alongside Gene Stallings, the other most famous uh, member of the Junction Boys would be Jack Party. Now, Jack Barty almost played at A&M, but he went on to coach for a number of years in the NFL, Redskins, Bears, and the Oilers during their glory days with Warren Moon. And he had success. He was yes, a successful head coach. And even collegiate, there was a time where he coached uh, University of Houston for around three years when they were had Andre Ware, and they were putting up all of those crazy numbers. So yeah. You see those two guys and the success they had and the success that team had after that rough first season when they were just so exhausted by what they went through. Yeah. You wonder, was he right? Because they show in the beginning that A&M's a program that's not doing very well. 
and there's a lot of sort of good old boyness for the program. Yeah. Kid, guy, kids are getting in there because of who their fathers were. Right. A lot of alumnus are sticking their fingers in the program and not really letting the coaches and everything do their work. Yeah. And Bryant's there. He's got a clean house, and he doesn't want anybody from the original staff there. That's yeah. one of the things he wants. So is there what you, what you kind of think? Was he right all along? Did he need to do this? Did he need to go the extremes for the success? And is he re- responsible for somebody like Stallings and Party having the success they had? I think certainly he is responsible for the later success of these these men. Not only the, these two particular men in the field of athletics, but the other guys they show at the end of this film went on to very successful careers in business. It inured them. Of, and uh, most of those were true, by the way. Yes. The story they bring about this guy who wanted... Bryant to invest 200 stocks. Yeah. And when he told him Bryant was 200, he thought, oh boy, he's going to not give me any. But he says, I'm going to take a thousand from you. Yes. And you trust him completely. Yeah. He trusted him. And uh, so looking at those end products, you can say, yes, his methods worked. And I think to answer your question, uh, if the purpose of fielding an athletic team, a football team, is to um, have success and be excellent at the game, then yes, he needed to take some corrective actions. And then was just completely corrupt and inept as a football team when he took over. Now, having said that, you did, you did ask the question this way. You said, was it, was he justified in going to the extremes he did? I don't think you have to go that far. Um, he, I think he, he did he did the right thing, isolating the team, taking them out and refusing any kind of press coverage. Uh, that was correct. I also think that he was correct in not allowing any alumni in the training camp, and he was also correct in in not playing favoritism for uh, um, donors and alumni that might have favorite sons they would like to get on the team. That was completely ridiculous too, um, but. He took it too far. Uh, he isolated the team, obviously, the most obvious cases, from medical care, from the doctors. And he damn near lost a kid's life. Um, that's going for the actions far. of the doctor, that would have happened. If it the doctor wasn't happened. aware and didn't plan yes. beforehand. Yes. So um, I, I think it's an, another uh, interesting illustration of something Aristotle talks about in his... Nicomachean ethics. You know, when 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 you when you are presented with some kind of a, a problem situation, uh, it sometimes pays to kind of take a step back and say, okay, uh, uh, here's this spectrum of possible approaches to the solution to this problem. Um, where is where uh, where on this spectrum does the correct uh, response lie? And you can kind of see the spectrum in this case would be on the extreme end, basically what Paul Bear Bryant did to fix this team. But on the other extreme, on the the lax end, so to speak, it's kind of where A&M was at the time. They just, I don't even know why they were fielding a football team um, other than to give alumni uh, something to come watch. But they were not, it was not a good product. Um but again, you know, somewhere in the middle and uh, taking into account the various factors, including the isolation factor among and, and physical, the physical training aspect, he could have asked that question uh, 
in each case and say, okay, where do I calibrate the dial here? And in every case, I think, or almost every case, I think he needed to ratchet it back a bit from mm-hmm. that extreme he took. And you can see, and this is what I like about the film, it shows the mellowing of age, too. You can see he came to that conclusion afterwards, and he lived with the guilt for having gone too far for the rest of his life. And he felt obliged, at the very least. I don't, I don't think he felt going to that reunion was, in fact, enough. Um, and he probably felt he couldn't make it up to some of those guys. Um, but what's, I think, touching about the end is you see those that set of players not only forgiving him, but saying, hey, you know, inadvertently, you helped us tremendously. Our lives would not have gone the way they did unless you <laughs> treated us the way you did back then. Now, it should be noted when we talk about the harshness of his coaching tactics. At that time, which was this is the early 50s, was not all that different from the norm. Yeah. Um, the most famous other uh, dictatorial or tyrant coaches would probably be Woody Hayes from Ohio State, whose favorite idol, by the way, was Patton. So you can see that kind of mindset. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, he famously, the thing that ruined his career, wasn't one of his own players, but after his team threw an interception and the guy, guy from Clemson who got the interception walked, ran off the sideline, Hayes punched him. <laughs> he punched him, yes. and, which is completely unacceptable. Yes. You, don't do, you, don't, uh, you don't do that to your own players, <laughs> let alone, let alone yes. a, you know, an opposing team. Yes. And he, that, his career was quickly. But he was... Brian was, you know, yeah. like that. Yeah. Lombardi could get into your face oh, at that yeah. time. Oh, yeah. Um, you read Talk about, about the, some a guy that, uh, at least in the heat of actual battle, uh, some of his players despised him, just hated him so much. Um, but they got results. They did get results. Read about a pit players like Paul uh, Otto Graham, who played with Paul Brown during the Browns' glory days in the 50s. They, he, yep. There were times where he got under his skin so much, and Graham said, if I had a gun, I would have shot him. (laughs) He's not that different, but there is, as time goes on, there has been this thing called the players' coaches. Yes. And one guy, he's Division Three, so you could say, well, the talent level and the competition is completely different than Division One. but Mm -hmm. the most famous example of a players' coach would be John Gagliardi. He coached at St. Uh, St. John's College in Minnesota for almost 60 years, yeah. starting in the 50s, and he just retired nine years ago. He passed away three years ago. Yeah. But he won three uh, Division Three national championships, yeah. but he was famous for only having 90-minute practices. He didn't demand that the players called him coach. He didn't just, just call me John. He was one of his... He didn't have like a big philosophy like play to win or always do this or always do that. And he was, one of the things he would do is he would hold up a dime and then point to the sun. He says, this dime is football. Sun is your life. Yeah. So realize the difference in yeah. all that. And he, I believe he didn't even have a playbook, which I find that a little bit hard to That believe. I did not know. That's amazing. But And his record is incredible. I mean, More you, wins look, than any other coach at any level. And not only that, the winning percentage is far above almost anybody else I can think of at any level of football it's incredible yeah and it just it goes to illustrate their wide, widely different uh um uh six and successful leadership philosophies and, and that is certainly one um an, another another interesting 
uh, uh, example of the more the player coach type kind of guy is Jim Lee Howell, who was the head coach of the Giants at the time that Landry was there as a player coach and, and Lombardi. Vince Lombardi and this That's guy an easy job. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, he I even said job. it. He said, "Man, my job I just have to blow up the footballs and and show up and let those two guys run the show." But um he had that same kind of an atmosphere. Uh he always uh uh emphasized to the men, you know, this is just a game, you know, uh, you know, have fun with it. Let's try to win, but don't take it so damn seriously. And at the same token, he had two coaches that took it very seriously uh, and they had great success. And, you know, and the reason that uh, uh, Landry and, and Lombardi had their success was because of Jim Lee Howell. Uh, and they both gave him credit for that. And he is, he really stuck out like a sore thumb in the fifties for not being kind of that typical hard-edged coach uh, like uh, mm-hmm. Paul Brown and, and others that you're talking about. But it works. And it, it's kind of interesting that they, those kinds of coaches have that perspective on the game that, after all, it is just a game. Um, and, and that seems to work. Uh, contrasting with uh, uh, the approach of – Bear Bryant, at least at this phase in his life, uh, it it was he he even makes the comparison late, later in the film, and I think this is a very telling scene. He makes the comparison as one of his players is leaving because he's no longer physically able to do this. It's too risky for him. It's the kid that had the heat stroke, right? I'm pretty yes, sure. Yes, yeah, it kid. is. So his dad's there helping him, and you see that dad is missing one arm. And he's uh, helping his kid put his luggage in the car. And uh, Paul Bear Bryant walks out there and he, he, he kind of moves up next to the dad and says, you know, uh, something to the effect that this is very rough stuff. This is war that I'm preparing these kids for. He turns around mm-hmm. and he says, I'm familiar with war. This isn't war. This is a game. And he leaves. And that that points out a very interesting thing, I think, because this kind of preparation and uh, uh, intentional use of physical pain and stress and so forth is used in military contexts, in boot camps, SEER training. Uh, the uh, Marine Corps has something called the crucible that they put, uh, put uh, special forces have very intensive training that they put their people through at risk of life very often. And they'll throw them out in the middle of nowhere and say, you've got to feed yourself and find your own water and we'll see you in two weeks, right? And they, those sorts of things prep them for uh, real world situations they're going to run into when they become uh, 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 combatants that are going to be at least as bad as that, but probably worse. So that prep makes a lot of sense in a military context. It doesn't make that much sense in the context of preparing to play games. And that that father gets that point across. Um, again, I think emphasizing that Aristotelian uh, object lesson that uh at least in the case of preparing for games, you need to dial it back a little bit, not make it not make it so damn dangerous. Um, 
again, that's what I like about the complexity of the character in the film. He comes to recognize that. And I think that moment with that dad is pivotal for him as he grows and mellows and ages and reflects on what he did. And as far as I know, Bear Bryant did lighten up in his coaching uh, 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 philosophy and his approach to training camps after the a and It was days. still pretty hard, but, but no, not like not that. As, yeah. yeah. Um, but you see when people try to go that extremes in this day and age that it would not... If, there, if Bryant, say, he was born 50 years later and he's coaching now, he would not last. Because yeah. the most... If the situations, particularly pertaining to heat stroke, was the DJ Durkin, who just coached at Maryland a few years ago, where a player died of a heat stroke due to bad practice conditions, yep. and Durkin Not, lost his job. Yeah, he wasn't allowing him to hydrate enough. Yes. Yep. And to a less dangerous level, but still as far as abusing players and being screaming and tyrannical... Um, Mike Rice Jr., not a football coach, but a basketball coach at Rutgers University. He was caught on tape. He was pushing players around. He was chucking basketballs at their head as hard yep. as he could. Yep. And I don't know what he's doing now. Yeah. So you see that in this day and age. But going back to your point about war, if you read not just from coaches but from players, like one of my favorite books about football is Fatso by Art Donovan, who played for the Colts in the 50s. He served in the Navy during World War II. His teammate, Gina Marchetti, fought in the Battle of the Bulge when he was just 19 or 18. Yeah. And you see those guys carry that war experiences. Even This is even when you read about the days of the 20s and 30s in NFL. you got World War I veterans. They carried that fight and war mentality in the game because there wasn't as many unnecessary roughness penalties. Yeah. There wasn't, it wasn't until the 50s that they created the face mask, so they were jamming their fingers in people's faces. Quarterbacks would run like hell all over the field because <laughs> there was no such thing as roughing the passer. So once you got rid of the ball, they were going to... They were going to cream you anyway, fists. right. One funny story Donovan tells is that one of his players named Bill Pellington, he kept, after he broke his arm, he kept his cast on so he could clothesline players and hurt them. Yeah. And he got joy out of that. Donovan oh, said yeah. he was very scared of Pellington because he thought he was going to kill somebody on yes. the field. So yeah. it's not just the coaches, it's also the players that are continuing that let's play this like it's a war. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. And there's another, it, it, this brings to mind another interesting case of, um, uh, I guess, the, the influence going the other way from football context to uh, a war context. Uh, there's a... Um, uh, Former uh, POW in in the uh, Hanoi prison system by the name of George Coker, who was very famous for being one of the greatest resistors in that group. He and another George, George McKnight, actually escaped from one of those prisons and made it 15 miles down the Red River. Uh, he made they uh, they managed to make their way to the Red River and they floated about 15 miles down the Red River to the outskirts of Hanoi, and if not for having uh, underestimated how soon the sun would come back up, they did this at night. They probably would have made it because they could have made another 15 20 miles just floating down that river. But what's very interesting about that uh, about George, uh, uh, George Coker is when he talks about the things that allowed him to uh, retain his sanity and survive 
um, uh, during his stay there because once they brought those two guys back from escaping, they were put under an incredible torture regime. They were not allowed to sleep for days and days and days on end. And he managed to survive this. And he tells the story that one of the things that helped him survive this was a coach that he had in high school that was about as hard <laughs> as Bear Bryant. And he says, you know, he would do the same thing. He'd line up across a, a from um, players and say, come on, try to block me. And he just hit, hit them and hit them, make them get them up and do it again, do it again, do it again. And he said he'd exhaust you. And I hated that man with the red passion. But as I was dealing with the North Vietnamese, I kept thanking him <laughs> because he prepared me for this. Very interesting. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find those podcasts and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, which episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Philosophy at the Movies.